and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Jason Kane, head of the Center for Wealth Planning Excellence. As part of our continued commitment to keeping our clients informed on current events and the potential impact on your wealth and financial goals, I'm sitting down with Kathleen Keneally, the head of our financial planning group here at Boston Private, to discuss college savings planning and considerations. Hello, Kathleen. How are you doing today? I'm good, Jason. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. Um, a hot topic given this time of year, uh, and one with a lot of question marks given uh, where we are in the COVID-19 battle. Uh, but I thought it'd be um, very beneficial for us to talk a little bit about college and college savings. Yeah, it's a great topic, uh, one that comes up pretty frequently with clients who have kids and even grandkids that hopefully someday will go to college and they want to know, you know, what the right way to go about saving uh, and planning for those costs are going to be. And you hit something right on the head that I think we should jump into off the, off the get-go here is cost. Let's talk a little bit about what it costs uh, to send uh, somebody to college here in 2020 uh, and then also, you know, what we expect that to be maybe 10, 15 years from now uh, when, when you know, our clients with uh, young children are getting uh, their children ready. Uh, so let's, let's kick it off with a dialogue on costs. What are you seeing in the marketplace uh, for costs to educate at the college level? So the College Board put out a report last year in 2019 called Trends in College Pricing. And the, that report found that the average published tuition and fees at a private not-for-profit four-year institution was $36,880 for the 2019-2020 school year. And keep in mind that that's just tuition and fees. So once you add in room and board, the total average cost rise to just shy of $50,000 a year. And then if you tack on another $4,100 for books and supplies and transportation costs and other miscellaneous expenses that come up, uh, that brings you close to about $54,000 a year. Um, and that's an average cost. So of course, there are going to be some schools that are a lot higher and some schools that are going to be a lot lower. The schools that they look at, you know, aren't just pri uh, private four-year institutions, but they look at all types of institutions. So for comparison purposes, a four-year public in-state tuition um, is about $10,400 a year for tuition and fees, uh, approximately $11,000 a year for room and board, and another, you know, call it $5,000 for books and supplies and miscellaneous expenses. So. For a uh, public um, in-state tuition, you're looking at a, a much lower cost of about $26,000, $27,000 a year. So those numbers, I'm assuming the $55,000 a year, let's call it for, uh, for private, and then the $27,000 or so for public, um, those are our actual cost. I know that many universities have stated costs above that number, kind of the off-the-rack cost, but that uh, incorporates uh, aid uh, and scholarship money, and that, those are kind of the average pay for each child uh, that, that goes. Uh, is that correct? So those are the, like, actual published costs for the schools. Um, again, it's an average, so it doesn't necessarily include 
uh, you know, aid or, or scholarships or grants yeah, yeah. Um, that, that you might get. Yeah, so, so that, you know, that is quite likely that people will get some form of aid or whether it's through, you know, grants or um, need-based scholarships or merit-based scholarships that will bring that number down. And that and those numbers are for 2020. They they aren't for 2021. They aren't for 2022. They're um, the cost of of education uh, here in 2020. So if we look at private schools, four years at that number uh, is $225,000 uh, before uh, inflationary uh, costs. And if we look at public, mm -hmm. we're a little bit north of 100,000 a year for four years. What's the trend been um, for uh, increase in those costs uh, as we look forward? So the same report found that over the last decade, tuition and fees rose around 2% a year over base inflation. So, you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, probably a 4% to a 5% annual increase um, over the last uh, 10 years. But if you go back even further, the same College Board report tells us that tuition and fees um, in the public four-year sector are actually almost three times as high as they were 30 years ago, and that's after okay. for uh, after for adjusting for inflation. So, you know, if rising college costs uh, continue to outpace inflation going forward, and and the planning work that we do with our clients, we do assume that that's a trend that is going to continue, um, you know, that, that makes an argument for needing to set aside, uh, you know, even more than you think might be, might be necessary to compensate for those increased costs over time. So if I do some back of the envelope uh, math uh, and I have a, a college freshman that's going to a private school uh, here in 2020, uh, four years of tuition with the increase the, uh, over the, the next three years, I'm looking at probably close to $250,000. And if he's going to or she's going to a public university in state, um, I'm probably looking at close to $125,000. That, that's a lot of, of money. And I guess that leads me to my next question for you. Um, how do we save for it? How do we get our clients comfortable with uh, with, with starting to build a, a nest egg uh, for their young children to get to those numbers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I actually, I actually ran some math on these two to kind of give you a sense of, you know, how those numbers can change um, depending upon, you know, for example, how old your child is and how many years you have to go until they enter college um, and the number of years that you have to save. So say, for example, you have a newborn and you've got 18 years during which you can start saving for college. If we then assume that college costs, as I mentioned before, you know, rise at about 5% a year, but that we are going to earn some return on the money we save, say about 6.5%, you'd actually need to set aside about $11,500 a year or just under $1,000 per month in a 529 college savings account if you wanted to be able to fully fund four years of private undergrad at about 54000 a year. Um, but alternatively, if you wanted to only cover four years of, you know, say $27,000 a year, 
you'd only need to save about $475 a month um, if you have 18 years over which to save. But I know that not everybody is, you know, opens up their 529 plan the day their, their son or daughter right. is born. Um, so if you actually wait until your child is eight and now they've got only 10 years to go until they enter college, you'd have to dramatically increase that savings rate. So instead of saving, you know, about $1,000 a month, you'd have to bump that up to about 1600 per month to pay for that same private four-year education. Um, but if they're going to potentially go to an in-state school, uh, you, you need to bump it up from about 475 a month to about $800 a month. So I thought it would be helpful to put some context around what the actual monthly savings rates would have to be uh, if you, you know, wanted to cover those costs. Um, by the time your, your child enters college. I think that is incredibly valuable information uh, to have kind of a, a bogey to start with uh, when you have children. And, and I, I think you hit it right on the head. Not everybody starts uh, the day after they're born. Uh, ideally, that would uh, give you the, the most flexible funding structure. Uh, to get to these very large costs. And, and the other aspect of this, too, is um, not everybody pays for all of the college costs. Not, uh, there are merit-based scholarships. There are um, a whole host of other scholarships, need-based uh, scholarships that come into play. Uh, I think, um, you know, I've heard you talk about safety and, and having a good, solid um, uh, starting point uh, as a critical uh, component of financial planning, uh, so it, it's, it helps us uh, to to build out a plan. Um, you, you talked, you mentioned 529s uh, as uh, 529 savings accounts. Can you, can you, and that's really about how you save versus what you save. Can you tell us, tell me a little bit about um, some of the rules and and uh, regulations around 529 accounts and what are they? specifically because uh, that seems to be a, uh, a real important component of college savings is these, uh, these special types of accounts. Can you share with uh, our audience what those are and how they work? Yep. Um, so a 529 college savings account is a type of account that you can open for your child or grandchild or pretty much technically anybody. Um, that allows you to save in a tax-advantaged manner for college. Um, and I should also clarify that by saying, you know, when the, um, the Tax Cuts and Job Act went into effect in 2017, they made a couple changes to um, what you can use 529 plans for, and you can now actually use a little bit of um, 529 plan money each year towards secondary education. It doesn't have to be um, college or uh, graduate school. But basically, the way a 529 plan works is um, when you put money into a 529 plan, um, it grows tax-free until you start taking money out for college. And then if you take a withdrawal that's used for qualified higher education costs, the money comes out tax-free as well, which is, um, which is pretty great. And if, for example, you end up, you know, not using the 529 money and you you take out a withdrawal uh, to pay for something that is not a qualified higher education cost, um, you, you do pay income taxes on the growth as well as a 10% penalty. 
Um, but for most people, they are able to use 529 college savings plans as a really great way to, uh, to save for college. And I think, you know, one of the nice things about it as well is that um, they, if, if, for example, you have a 529 plan uh, for your older child and they end up not needing all of those funds to go to school, um, you can actually change the beneficiary on the 529 plan to a sibling or um, there's actually a, a, a broader pool of people that qualify uh, that you can change the beneficiary to. Um, you can actually also use it for yourself if, you know, your kids get through school and then you decide you want to, you know, go back to school yourself or go back to grad school. Um, those funds are available for you as well. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to them. Sorry to interrupt. You mentioned okay. uh, grad school. Uh, what if what if your child doesn't use it all for undergrad and they uh, have some left over? You can use that for, say, medical school, law school, uh, graduate school. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Yep. It's not just for undergraduate use. It, it could be for graduate school uh, use also. One, uh, yep, so I've got be. another question. What can you use it for? Can you use it for room and board? Can you use it for, uh, it sounds like for tuition. Uh, what about uh, some of the other, uh, you know, ancillary expenses associated with college, uh, computer, books, uh, maybe even travel? Can you, can you give us a little bit of insight onto, into what those dollars can be used for? Yeah, I, I think you hit most of the big ones um, already, so definitely tuition and fees, room and board, um, books, uh, uh, I think even like compute, if you buy a computer that you need for school, there's a pretty long list of uh, qualified uh, expenses that you can use it for. So it does give you a, a pretty um, a pretty good, you know, range of flexible options that you can spend the money on, which is great. So benefit is um, income tax-free growth while uh, the assets are, are being saved inside the account. If you use them for, for college expenses, they come out income tax-free. So it's like an IRA on steroids for college savings. Um, and uh, are there, t tell me, I've, I've heard about other state income tax benefits uh, to some of these. Can you share with me uh, what, what those are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with 529 plans, um, each state actually has its own 529 plan or sort of sponsors a 529 plan. And so I think one of the things is there's this idea that, you know, you, you have to live in a certain state in order to participate in that state's 529 plan. Um, but that's, you know, that's actually not correct. You can participate in any 529 plan that you want. Um, but you always want to start by looking at your state to see if there are any state advantages um, for participating in your state's 529 plan because some states do offer an income tax deduction on their, um, on your state income tax return. So here in Massachusetts, for example, if you contribute to the Massachusetts 529 college savings plan, um, you get a um, Massachusetts state income tax deduction when you file your return of up to um, $1,000 if you're a single filer and up to $2,000 if you are uh, married filing jointly. And so uh, it, every state is different. Every state has its own uh, rules, um, but it's always a good place to start when you are looking for 
uh, which 529 plan you're interested in using. One of the places I look to for information when I'm trying to figure out what the, you know, what my client's, uh, you know, state plan offers is a website called savingforcollege.com, which actually lets you um, look up each individual state's plan to see if there's an income tax deduction or, or another benefit for um, being a resident of that state and using their 529 plan. Yeah, so there's, it sounds like it, it, there are significant state benefits uh, in uh, your resident state if you happen to use that plan. But you don't have to, to your, to your point, you don't have to use that plan. And um, if, you, um, if you find that you don't like the investment options in a certain plan, can you switch plans? Go to a different state-sponsored plan? Yes, you can. Yeah, and like as I said, not every state offers income tax benefits. Some of them do, um, some of them don't. So it's important to kind of check each plan. But if you you know start off with one plan and you want to make a change, uh, you can. I believe the limitation is just once you're allowed once per year um, to make a change. Kathleen, are there any uh, limitations on how much you can contribute to 529 plans? Yes, there are, um, and there are a couple of different uh, limitations that apply here. So um, one is the limitation that the state that the state actually puts on its own 529 plan. Um, so you know some states may have a you know maximum funding amount of $250,000 or $200,000 or $300,000. Um, it's a state directed maximum contribution amount. Um, so that's one thing that should be taken into consideration. Um, other than, you know, just that maximum amount that the, that the state says, um, there's, I, w I won't call it a maximum funding amount, but I think there are some other considerations you need to um, think about. So one is that, you know, if you are a parent and you set up a 529 plan for your child, um, you're the owner of the account, but the child is the beneficiary. And so any money that you put into the 529 plan actually counts as a gift. So you have uh, you do have the annual gift exclusion that you can use. Um, so say for example, you can put fifteen thousand dollars into a five twenty nine plan um, this calendar year, and that will use up your annual gift amount for your child. If you are married, you can put thirty thousand um, dollars into the plan for your child and still stay within the exemption limits. Um, there's actually a rule where you can actually fund up to five years of annual gifts all in one year. So if you wanted to just, you know, you've got um, some lottery winnings lying around and you just want to like throw a bunch of cash into a 529 plan, you can do five years of 15000 a year into the 529 plan or even double that if you're married filing jointly. Um, the sort of caveat is that you you have to survive those five year um, those five years. Otherwise, there's um, some estate tax implications there, um, and you're also prevented from making any additional gifts uh, to your kid over over that same five years. So you kind of need to let the clock run out before you um, do any additional gifting. Fantastic. Now, uh, 529 plan isn't the only tool that. Uh, families we work with use um, for savings. Can you share with me what other um, other clients that you've worked with use? What other 
types of savings mechanisms do they use for college? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things um, people, you know, do also look at, but they're not quite as common are 529 um, prepaid uh, 529 plans. So uh, this allows you to sort of prepay future college costs today. Um, there are, uh, I want to say maybe like 15 or 20 uh, states that sponsor them, um, but they're not as, you know, they are an option. They're not quite as commonly used. Um, some people just, you know, they just save in a normal savings account or a normal investment account. Um, which you can, you know, certainly do, but I would say that because that doesn't give you the tax-free growth that a 529 plan does, um, you're ultimately going to have to save a little bit more in a, you know, non-tax preferential vehicle to, to make up for um, the tax savings difference. Um, and then I've also seen some people use, um, you know, educational trusts or um, UTMA accounts to, you know, put aside some money. Uh, for kids, whether it's, you know, the parents themselves or um, very commonly grandparents might set up a trust or um, uh, an account for their grandchild um, to, you know, help off, to help their, their children and grandchildren save for, for college as well. So there's, um, there's a lot of different ways to save. Um, there's no, you know, I, I love 529 plans. I think they're great if you are uh, you know, really looking to save specifically for um, undergrad or graduate school costs. Um, but if you, you know, for example, want to have some flexibility for how the kid uses the funds at some point in the future uh, without paying, you know, any penalties, um, then perhaps maybe there's a, a different, uh, a different vehicle that might be better suited. Uh, it sounds like for a vast majority of folks, the tax avoidance of uh, of the accumulation inside the 529 account and the potential uh, state tax income tax benefit that you get when you contribute to it. That for a vast majority of folks, the 529 uh, is likely the uh, the vehicle of choice. It sounds like there's also a number of different uh, options that prepay one if if you have. You know, the dollars sitting there and want to avoid the uh, inflationary increase in costs of college tuition that you could capture the price now for a, a child that might not go to school for 15 years. There's obviously some drawbacks there, uh, but, but from a um, general perspective, you would head with the 529 for a vast majority of the folks. That's what it, that's what it sounds like you're saying and just want to make sure that, that, that that's what, uh, what makes the most sense for for uh, most folks. Yeah, I think that does make the most sense for um, the majority of people. But like I said, every situation is different and every family circumstance is a little different and there are always some nuances that might make um, something something else more appropriate. Um, but generally, I would say, you know, 529 plans are a great, great way to get started. And as I've heard you say time and time again, uh, it might be the best vehicle generally, but the key is sitting down and having uh, a dialogue about what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to accomplish that. That interactive financial planning and fitting uh, everything into uh, your unique, a client's unique set of circumstances is really the key at the end of the day. 
Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, what vehicle you use and also how much you are setting aside each year for college really should be a decision that you make in the context of, you, you know, your, your broader full financial picture. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of people, they're trying to balance the trade-off between, um, you know, meeting current lifestyle expenses and needs and saving for college, but then also saving for retirement. And uh, as I, you know, tell a lot of my clients, you can borrow for college, but you can't borrow for retirement. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the metaphor I usually like to use here too is that of, you know, if you're, if you're flying on an airplane with your kids and you go through the safety instructions before you take off, they always tell you to put your own oxygen mask on first before you help anyone else. And I think that same idea really does apply here want to make sure, you know, you as the parent are taking care of yourself and your future um, before you start sacrificing uh, your retirement savings just to make sure you can pay, you know, a full $54,000 a year for four years. Um, sure, sure. Unless, you know, you, you have that conversation with your child and they're comfortable and you're comfortable with the possibility that, you know, they might need to be supporting you in your golden years because you, you know, huh. put them through really expensive uh, private four-year education. Certainly uh, a dialogue that needs to occur uh, with professional advisors because it's not an easy uh, decision to make. And I love the, the analogy that you use uh, with regard to the face mask. I think that is uh, kind of right, hits it right in uh, the sweet spot. Now. Uh, one last question that I have, and I've seen this with um, with families where grandparents uh, want to help out. Uh, tell me about the rules uh, around, you know, we've talked a little bit about the gifting limitations, but what happens um, when, uh, when grandma and grandpa pay or even aunts and uncles uh, pay uh, tuition directly? Uh, sort of like directly to the university. I've heard that there's some tax incentives there. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how that's used in the overall funding? Uh, yes, yeah, so we talked about the annual gift exclusion amount, $15,000 a year, but there's actually a couple of um, you know, things that you can do in order to help other people out with payments that don't actually count against that annual uh, annual gift exclusion amount. So. If you pay uh, tuition directly to the school, um, so you write the check out to, you know, Harvard University instead of your, uh, you don't make the check out to your child or grandchild and have them turn around and, and give that check to Harvard. Um, if you pay the tuition directly to the school, it's not considered a gift. So um, it, it doesn't count against that annual a gift exclusion amount and it doesn't reduce your lifetime um, exemption amount either. So it's a pretty uh, tax gift and estate tax efficient way to um, help somebody out with, with college costs um, while also at the same time, you know, if, if having a taxable estate at the time of your death is, is an issue for you, it's a great way to, to draw down on your estate while, while helping out, um, you know, your, your kids and your grandkids financially speaking. So and that same rule applies to medical costs too. So it's uh, tuition and, and medical costs are the, the big thing. If you um, need to write a check to a hospital for some reason, that's, uh, that also counts in those rules. And I think you hit it right on the head that um, 
in the infant, say grandma uh, or grandpa are paying for uh, for the grandchildren's tuition. They can't write the check to uh, to mom and dad. They can't write the check to the kids. They have to literally cut the check directly to the, the academic institution. That's correct. Fantastic. Yep. Well, uh, thank you, Kathleen, for, for walking us through uh, these issues. You know, the thing I heard loud and clear is communication, uh, to have a plan, to work with a professional, uh, to put it together. Um, and, you know, we appreciate uh, getting your insight uh, with regard to uh, everything there. Um, and we covered a lot today, and while there's always uncertainty, uh, we want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to Kathleen and her team at Boston Private uh, with any questions uh, or ongoing concerns that, um, that you might have. Providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is our mission here at Boston Private. You can also read our latest perspectives on wealth planning as this situation evolves by visiting bostonprivate.com. And while you are there, you can subscribe to our newsletter if you want all of this information delivered right into your inbox. And be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. We'll see you next month with our next visit with Kathleen and our Financial Planning Consideration Podcast. Thank you very much for your time. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.